Welcome, everybody. If you were to pick a career path in 2022 with high employment potential, what what jobs might you pick? Okay. You should probably choose to be a vaccine specialist. Pandemic, there's heightened awareness there. Or if you were to go on LinkedIn, one of the top jobs would be being an inclusion and diversity manager. So I thought that uh, with that being the background, we should have a conversation with some professionals who have spent decades building highly successful careers in human rights, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I'm hoping they're gonna share with all of us today their career paths, thoughts on credentials, credibility, and offer advice and pitfalls to avoid as professional practice opportunities in this field expand. So listeners, if you're hearing some background noise, I can. there's a pool table over there. We're actually recording this episode live on location at the conference of the Canadian Association for the Prevention of Discrimination and Harassment in Higher Education at the beautiful Cape Breton University in Unamaki. We may even have time to get some live questions from the audience if we're lucky. So let's dive right in. Listeners, you know my voice by now. It's Sarah Gon, Algonquin College's Inclusion and Diversity Specialist. But joining me today are two highly accomplished EDI professionals, Dr. Tanya DeMello, Assistant Dean of Student Programming, Development and Equity at Toronto Metropolitan University, the Met, formerly Ryerson, and she's also CAPTI president. And along with her, we have Marion McGregor, Executive Director of the Centre for Human Rights, Equity and Inclusion at York University. Welcome, so glad to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting us, inviting me along. So, okay, since we're talking about careers and how to shape one in EDI, I'm going to skip the typical reading of bios. At this point, I would spend the next five minutes reading your long, long list of accomplishments. So let's skip over that and go right to the interview questions. Let's start with the, the quintessential starting interview question. Okay, so Dr. DeMello, please tell me a little bit about yourself and your career highlights thus far. So first of all, you can call me Tony. My mother always says that until I can take out her appendix, she's not calling me doctor. Uh, so please call me Tony. And I will tell you, I want to first say that I can't believe one of the top jobs is equity and inclusion manager. I think Marion will agree with me. For folks that have been doing this work for a couple of decades, this was work that most people thought, is that even a job? Can you get paid to do that? Why would you do that? So it's interesting that it's now become such a hot job and such a popular uh, place to work. I'm excited about that. I have some reservations and some concerns that I'm sure we'll get into in this interview. Um, but it's just incredible how much things have changed, to be honest. So in terms of my background and career, I actually started in the private sector. So I was an economist by trade, the child of immigrant parents that said, you can do all of your social justice stuff for free as a volunteer, but we need you to pay rent and we want you to have a livelihood. They were worried that this kind of work doesn't pay enough to pay rent and take care of a family. And so I started off as an economist and a business analyst, and I worked in a whole bunch of corporations across North America and in Europe in operations and finance. And I kind of did this stuff on the side. And over time, it became clear to everybody that worked with me that my real passion was working in social justice and in access to justice, and that the day work in operations and finance was just to pay the bills. So I ended up doing my master's at Princeton University and it opened up a world of possibility for me. I ended up working in humanitarian aid for the United Nations 
And among everything I've done in my life, I would say that was the most rewarding, working frontline with people that were refugees or displaced people. I worked in West Africa and later in Colombia, in South America. And family commitments got me to come home. And so I thought I would have this illustrious international career. And I realized my mother wasn't well at the time and I wanted to be closer to home. And I decided to work in human rights in my own country. And where I saw that work happening at its most prominent and most important and most radical levels was in the university context. And so I worked in human rights as the director of human rights. I worked at University of Toronto, later at Toronto Metropolitan, which I'm calling Toronto Met. And now I'm assisting to open up Canada's newest law school to hopefully get more and more young lawyers to care and work towards access to justice. See, that is an incredible accomplishment that's built on kind of that whole series of steps along the way. So I can't wait to dig into that a little bit more. And Marion, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career highlights so far? Uh, thank you. I funny listening to Tony. There's definitely some intersections where we both had a international, I did some international work as well and found myself back here in Toronto. I started off wanting to be a lawyer from a young age, although not knowing anything about what they did. But as the youngest of 10 kids, you have to learn how to scramble and defend yourself pretty early on. Uh, so I went off to law school not really understanding anything, didn't know what articling was, didn't know what an LSAT was, but and, and only when in the family to go. And when I was in law school, I had a transformational moment, and that was working at the Student Legal Clinic, Legal Assistance of Windsor, and Rose Voivodek, who was the director at the time, was just the most incredible woman and had dedicated her legal career to social justice and access to justice work. So it was there that law school I found very, um, I was very disillusioned when I got to law school, although I don't really know what I thought I was going to get into, but it certainly wasn't what I found there. And then I found what I, my people in this legal clinic. And then I spent the next many years working in uh, community legal clinics in and around Toronto, serving low income individuals and families. I also had a, a stint internationally. I worked in Delhi at the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative, working in prisons and um, doing prisoners' rights in New Delhi for a year. And also thought that that's what I, I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and uh, an unwell mother brought me back, uh, brought me back to Toronto and Toronto I stayed. And then I started working at the legal clinics. One of my most rewarding jobs was uh, working at the legal clinic at the corner of Queen and Parliament, uh, which is one uh, was n not necessarily now, but certainly at the time, uh, very vulnerable, low-income community. One of the largest social housing uh, complexes in North America, or or in that catchment area, along with uh, rooming houses, and it was just an incredible experience. Anyway, I did that for quite a while. I ran the student legal clinic attached to Osgoode Hall Law School, and that started me into teaching. Um, and I got my master's in critical disability studies. I opened up another legal clinic for students to work with ARCH, the Disability Law Center, so that they could understand the uh, needs of the disability community um, and get a credits out of that. 
And that brought me to uh, wanting to do more equity work. And then I moved to the Law Society of Ontario as an equity advisor. And then shifting to here to York University as the executive director at the Center for Human Rights. It's a little shift. I think when you look at it one way, it doesn't look like a very clear path, but it felt clear at the time. I don't think any career paths are linear or clear. So I think I'm really hearing that both of you, some reinvention here and a, and a, a commitment to family shaping both your careers, which is really interesting. In each of kind of those overviews, you detailed some credentials. I think, Marion, you gave yours a little bit more. Uh, Tony, you downplayed your credentials. Um, <laughs> so I'm wondering when I get into this, if you can share all of your credentials. But I'm wondering when we think about these jobs in EDI, you don't you don't go get a degree in equity or a degree in diversity or right. You go in and you study sociology and then you, you focus a little bit um, or you study law and you end up in um, serving under uh, represented groups. Right. So there's there's not this diploma you get or there's no internationally recognized certification so tony detail your credentials a little bit more please and then tell me if you think that it's necessary to have a certain set of credentials to be a successful equity practitioner i love this question so i i know i'm very credential because i love learning so for me taking a class is like going to a movie and I'm an auditory learner, so I don't learn well. I actually don't listen. I don't, I don't read a lot of articles other than for class. Um, so I'm somebody that learns really well in a structured environment. So I, t I go to school because it's fun for me. So I have two undergraduate degrees in political science and economics from University of Waterloo. I have two master's degrees from Princeton in public policy and urban and regional planning. I have two law degrees from McGill Universities in common law and civil law. I have my doctorate from University of Toronto, where I looked at in social justice education, when we say things like, Sarah would be an amazing fit for this job, what do we mean to fit? Who fits and who doesn't? And I looked at the experience of racialized people who often don't fit. And so I talked about fit. And then I got a master's of education uh, in counseling and psychotherapy and I became a registered psychotherapist. And I'm now doing um, a master's of divinity in religious studies. So. I'm not a good example because I would not say you need all of these things. <laughs> Oof, because, to be boy. So here's what I'm going to say. I will say that working in a university context as a woman of color, a racialized woman, and black and indigenous even more so, unfortunately, credential inflation is real. And there is an expectation more for racialized women and racialized people, black and indigenous, to have these credentials. I didn't want to get my PhD. And in fact, somebody told me, if you're going to be a senior administrator in a university, as a racialized woman, you better have your PhD or they will not hear you. And I have found that to be true. But I promise you, I thought the law degrees were terminal degrees. So what I'm looking for when I'm hiring, and if I'm ever going to be in a VP equity role, which is something I hope that is in my cards, what I look for now as somebody who works in a law school, as somebody who is the head of human rights, is people that have the work experience, as Sarah said. I want to know that you have a degree that at least opened you up to the thinking, anything from sociology to political science to critical race theory to gender studies, any of those degrees that opened you up to asking some of those difficult, critical questions around the work, I would love to see. But I am looking for people who have both lived experience and people who have had professional work experience. 
One of the things that I think is happening right now that is actually worrying me is the jobs are proliferating. Uh, like if you've ever grown mint in a garden, it just <laughs> takes over everything is what I've learned. And it feels like that. It's like there's a job everywhere. And I think it's so important to have people with lived experience. And by that, I mean, you need to actually have racialized black, indigenous, queer, that means LGBTQ2SI+, folks with disabilities. With the actual lived experience, it's essential. And we need to make sure that we continue to focus on people that have some of the professional um, experience. And many folks with lived experience have it. Uh, and many folks that have the professional experience have no lived experience, and there's a huge chasm, right? And so I want, I want to talk about that's a difficult tension for me. However, I will say, depending on what institution you work in, I have found it surprising how much people are looking for the master's degree, how much increasingly people are looking for the PhD. And my personal view, and I want this on record, is I think the credential inflation is not serving us. Because I think the knowledge you need is knowledge working in communities. And it can sometimes come from reading articles. It almost certainly must be coupled with doing the work in the field. So I push away from that. And I actually look for more and more people that have done work with communities. So in terms of professional experience, I don't just mean you worked in a unit that X. I mean you actually worked with the communities that you're going to be serving in the community you're being hired for. The number of times we're working with indigenous communities, and the person's worked in health, for example, or they've worked in you know, sort of difficult government lobbying, but they've never worked with an indigenous community, I find that concerning, and I don't find it helpful. So I'm interested to hear what you both actually think about that and your credentials. <laughs> well, I, the, I ran through mine, was very fast uh, in the credentials component was a lot faster than yours, uh, the law degree. And I thought the law degree was ter like a terminal degree as well. It is. Until I got to the law school and realized, um, this may sound a bit critical, but I realized that that didn't seem to be enough. That wasn't getting me the, uh, maybe the respect I thought I was deserved. I had been practicing lawyer for many years, had worked out in the community um, in a really hands-on, really, really hands-on way. You can't work as a community clinic lawyer without, you know, moving your clients for them and, and, and helping them, you know, working in, a, in someone who has hoarding and, and actually helping them get rid of things so they can save their housing. Anyway, I ended up doing my master's in critical disability studies because I I actually love reading course syllabuses. They actually turned like, it's like a, my jam. I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. What will I learn? And I, I, um, so I, I, I really found that fun. I'm not sure I have another degree in me. I like the structure of the course. So I finished the coursework for a PhD, but I can't seem to move it past the next, that next stage is a bit uh, challenging. I, I have to agree with you, Tony, that the, it is, that combination of folks who do have lived experience and and that's a that's a that's a moving target about what that lived experience sort of looks like and also uh you've done work in the field not and and i i think you you've you've said it very well there's jobs aplenty there's jobs in places that this is the first time they've ever thought about having someone in this role I'm worried about who that attracts and in, in, in who would go into that place because I'm not sure they're going to, these are places that really need to have that be pushed along and who they're attracting to, to into that role 
may not be able to help them move move the needle as you will and they're yeah i think it won't be a good experience for everyone it won't be a good experience for the organization who finally came around to wanting to do this work and the person themselves who may be out of their depth um because you have to you have to be pretty strong-willed to to move this to move the needle and to engage in it and you got to know your stuff um you will be challenged all the time every day people will challenge you about what you know why you want to do it the way that you want to do it or what your best advice is about how to move this through you will be constantly challenged on that probably where the degrees help you because you you, you even they just help you. you you're able to rely on that well i have my law degree or i have also have a master's you're able or in your case don't you, i also have a phd and a couple of other masters like i have a, a, a that background and that's that solidness that you know if i look 30 years ago that wasn't the that wasn't the case for people to be able to advance through they didn't need all of those degrees um, but we seem to but I, I find it challenging um, to to watch what people are gonna what people are gonna be able to do um, moving forward when they maybe don't have the knowledge or the, the background to it. And will that help us or hinder us in the, us those who've been in doing it for a really long time? Yeah. So I think credentials are especially important to detail because we work in post-secondary we're credential granting institutions so we we look to people to to get credibility from that um but my my background's different from yours i have a mba so i come from not the legal background but the business background and i never used to put my credentials behind my name or like mention this sort of thing until i came into post-secondary which i've only been in for about uh, a little over four years now and and this all of a sudden mattered like this this you know having having a master's degree and making sure that everybody knew that i had it was how i started to open doors and have conversations so um i think that credentials matter for these positions in post-secondary I'm not sure that credentials uh, are as important when you're doing this work outside of post-secondary. When I look at the work that I did when I worked in the mining sector, um, nobody, everybody had an MBA or a business background or had made a million dollars already. So they don't, credentials wasn't the thing that, that gave you credibility. So. I think it's important, but it's important in this area. I think what's more important is the skills that I learned in business school around influencing. So I'm able to draw on the language of senior administration to uh, to influence. And I think that's the skill that I learned in business school that's more important than the, the letters. But I want to pick up on some a couple things that, that you, you both um, brought up there. One is lived experience. You both said that, you know, that weighs heavily you think in in building a successful career and i would agree with you so what would your advice or what are your thoughts when you're in an interview and you know that you have deep lived experience how do you bring that forward in a way that um is meaningful and effective in an interview without kind of causing the the conversation to go into a place that you are uncomfortable with, right? 
So such a great question and one I counsel law students on all the time. As a person with a disability, I'm legally blind. Uh, begs the question what illegally blind is, but that's for a whole other conversation. And it is talking to students about how they disclose their disability to potential employers, particularly if you're going to need accommodation. It, you, you can't hide it. Uh, where some students will be able to hide it maybe initially, others not so much. Um, you might not know that I had a disability if if you just met me we sat down, but goodness, if you needed me to read anything or look at anything or see anything, you're, you're, it's gonna come very quickly. So I've been fortunate enough in my career, um, I'm, I'm very outspoken about it and I talk about it right away and if you're not interested in me because of the disability that I am certainly not interested in you about that. But I do take, I mean, obviously I come to the conversation as strength-based um, and how my understanding of disability, how that benefits the person, the organization and the role that I'm in. And I've been fairly successful in turning that conversation around. I don't engage in conversations where uh, people are going to ask me things about it that I'm not interested in answering. I, I'm pretty skilled about turning the conversation elsewhere. And I've been lucky to, and I think it's luck and some maybe some skill in, in showing people that there's a benefit to the knowledge I bring because of an understanding around, around disability. And there's an easy latch or easy hook in when you do a, dis, a degree in critical disability studies that's usually a bit of a cue for people that there's, there's maybe something there, but in fairness, I read it right in the cover letter. It's, it's there. I talk about it as that strength, like as a person with a disability, I bring this to the table. So it's right out, right at, right at the front for those I coach about it. You know, we have to talk about their own comfort level too, but we, I do start having conversations about why your different ways that you, think or the different experiences that you bring to this this role uh, as a strength base because often around disability it's it's not it's seen as a strength um, it's a deficit it's something to hide um, I could go on about the way disability has been framed as to why that is um, but trying to turn that around and Tony what's your take on sharing lived experience in a constructive way during a job interview I'm so fascinated by what Marion has just said because I think it both flips the framework where we start to literally do the work by modeling that we are going to be advocates for ourselves and for others in the community, as well as there's a courage there that I think you're calling on people to have and that I've seen you exhibit. Oh, thanks, Tony. You're welcome. And I struggle with the tension around power. So if you're Marion, who I would hire to do just about anything, and she talks about that, then I think it's persuasive. I worry for people who are trying to get in that don't have her power and don't have my power. So I can tell you when I started as a junior racialized person, one, you can't hide your lived experience as a racialized person because it's on your yeah. face. And one difference with disability, and this is not for all folks with disabilities, but you don't always know. I walk in as a racialized woman. People walk in as black. People walk in as indigenous in a way that you can't maneuver it um, 
with ease because people have already made a judgment the minute you walk in, whether or not they know they have. And that's one of the challenges. So I like what you're offering because what I will do is own my, my location and not just my race, but my social privilege. So my socioeconomic status, where I grew up, where, where I've been able to work, that I may have gone to Princeton, but it was on full scholarship, that I went to a community uh, school where, you know, I, it was funded to do that as well. And so I think socially locating myself as all of the different elements of my lived experience brings a richness. And I have found that has changed as I have more power. So now with my PhD, with a degree from Princeton, with the fact that I'm a director or an executive or a president or whatever it is, I can talk about my mental health in a way that I would never be able to have done as a student. And I struggle again, it's the same thing we were talking about. I'm telling you I think these credentials aren't important, but I got them for the reason Sarah said, which is because they're important. But I don't actually think they're important. I've just fallen prey to a system that I know is so difficult to enter, but I don't want to tell you to do that because I hate it. And yet, my power has allowed me to talk about a lot of the things I have that in my lived experience could be literally used against me. And I'm worried because I don't want people who are more junior to do that freely and to experience the prejudice that I experienced when I was younger, right? And so I think there's that balance that I think you've actually raised for me of where do you find the courage to raise those things and know that you're doing it at potentially a cost, saying I'm gonna have children in the next few years and I wanna be in a workplace that'll support that. Let me tell you, some will, and most will not say anything and not hire you. So I don't wanna put you in that position if you don't have that power, because I'd like you to be able to have a family. And so where I've spent my energy is less on telling people how to show their lived experience in a way that'll be meaningful and have courage and change it for others. But I work with organizations across the country, I've worked with over 500 organizations to talk to them about how they can value lived experience to say to them, don't do this thing that we called anonymized resumes, where people don't look at the name, because what you're saying is we don't have biases, and if we don't see your name, we won't be biased. Because what people start to do is they take out the fact that they worked in an LGBTQ organization, because they don't want you to know that. They take out the fact that they have a church affiliation. They take out the fact that they work with black students and they are black students. And so I talk to organizations, firms, companies, governments, about how I want them to start asking about people's lived experience in a rich way. And if we start to do that more, people will be eager to share it because you're asking for it because you want to know it. That you hire people, and I say this all the time, please don't just hire black people that worked with black students. Ask all of your white students what they have done in their universities or their jobs to advance racialized black and indigenous people and hire those white students. Ask straight people where they showed up for pride and were they on the base straight alliance. Hire those straight people. We have to stop being like the, the lived experience we want are only for the people who lived it. Who are the people that are working in communities that they're now saying they're going to serve? Hire those people. And so that's kind of how I frame it. But I struggle because I'm telling you not to do something that I want you to do, but I'm scared that you will receive a consequence if you don't have power in a society where power really can block your entry. And so sometimes I say kind of don't tell them, and then as you get in, work on it. And other times I say if you have power, do it. And other times I say you have to figure out what works for you because you have to pay your rent. You have to take care of your families. I want you to get in, and I want you to shift this landscape, and I want you to transform the culture. So I think you have to make that decision around the matrix that works for you. So that's a non-answer to the question, and my no. guess is you have stuff to add. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. I wanted to book onto the modeling, um, and I think you do this. 
uh, I try and do this of mo of modeling um, the the I these very ideas, right? I want so I'll I I speak to the first year law students on varying topics, and I always begin with, and I am a person with a disability. And I'm going to tell you what that it is. I'm going to tell you what the limitation is. I always make a joke because youngest of 10 is the only way to get through life. Um, but I, I try and model that. And I think you do the same. But you're modeling um, both all of that. Right? The complex, you have to model the complexity too in the conversations and the way you discuss it with people because you're quite right. People have to also do what's going to work for them in their in like in their scheme of where they are in life at that time and you're quite right i managed to always say it right from the beginning but that was a a a, a courage at a time and there's not wasn't always successful but it was okay I, it, make it through but you we have to have those conversations with these people need to see there's an option there is an option to actually talk about it and there is an option and a benefit. And I agree with you on the anonymized resumes because it takes out the richness that people have in their resume because they're hiding so much, taking out the name, but you see you've been working at the, you know, X, Y, and Z and doing this kind of work. So now you have no volunteer work. You have no anything because <laughs> you have to take this all out. Like, well, what's it's, left? It's saying that that doesn't have value as right. well yes right it's it's saying like well if you'd volunteered at a place that you know represented the majority then like that has value but supporting or working with these other groups doesn't yeah um which is incredibly because i want to hide because i want to hide my identity so you'll choose me because we're begun with the idea that you have unconscious bias let's right. work on that a it's, bit it's a minimization approach minimize who you are minimize your richness of experience um so that you don't you know disrupt anyone's fragility right yeah, yeah. and is that a place you want to work also right. right like if you have to do this is that the right place and one of the things i actually found that sarah you're tweaking in me in my doctoral research what we found was if you have to fit to get in you have to fit when you're in and so the biggest challenge wasn't even just I'm going to pretend I don't have a disability. I'm not going to talk about experiences of racialized women. If I'm queer, I get to be queer outside of work and not here. Because once I get in, I'll be able to. And in fact, the biggest finding was it was harder once you got in because the culture of needing to fit to get you in was so pervasive that when you got in, you had to keep masking who you were. You had to keep downplaying what your weekend was if it wasn't what the dominant group did. And there was so many accounts of people saying, I felt like it was two jobs. They both had to do my day job and be somebody I wasn't. And when you get home, you take off that suit, but you get to be who you are. You get to speak how you speak. You get to talk about and engage in the activities that you love. And I think that this, this idea, and we've heard about it today in this conference so much of, it's not just about recruitment. You need people to think about retention. Mm -hmm. What does it feel like to belong? And what it feels like to belong is to have a process from start to finish, including the days that I'm working there, that I feel that those identities that I bring in that lived experience are valued. Well, I think this is the perfect jumping off point to move from talking about how to get in the door to how do you grow your career to something you know as incredible as you both have being senior leaders. And we know that mentoring or sponsorship is a, a key component of that. 
Um, Tony, would you tell us a little bit about one or two of the mentors that made a difference in your career and how you found them or how you connected with them? Yes. They're both black women. And I talk a lot about how I'm amazed often that my stories start with black women having reached out to help me as a racialized woman, especially since black women and indigenous women have it so much harder than I do. Um, you know, we think about everything from when you're a racialized person, it is harder if you're black, it's harder if you're indigenous, and in any racialized group, it's harder if you're darker skinned versus lighter skinned. And both of them in the university sector were black women. The first is in Joki Wan, who's a very senior uh, leader at University of Toronto, and came up to me and said, you need to get your PhD. And I said, no, I have two law degrees. I have work experience. I've lived experience. I worked at the UN. She said, you need to get your PhD. And she, I want to say, forced me. And her reasoning was she wanted to see more racialized people in power that would hire racialized people. And she wanted to see more white people in power that would hire more racialized black and indigenous people. And she believed I was one of them. And she is, it's amazing as I talk to black and brown women, they're all like, and Joki Wan is the start of my story because she just went around and got all of us to get this credential. And I thought I want to be like that, to not just get it for myself, but I should be tapping people to say, here's what you need and here's how I can support you. And her support that was unwavering, I don't always share this, but I wanted to have children and I was single and IVF was something that I was engaging in and her ability to support me in that goal and let me believe that that was a possibility and still get a PhD, I had not experienced with anybody. Everybody, including women that were parents said I had to choose and she believed they were possible. So to have a woman tell you something's possible that feels out of your reach was important. Um, and she just did the work. She did the work that she writes about. And so I try to do that. I try to hire support and mentor other racialized, and specifically black and indigenous, I'll tell you that. I think of Tiffany Haddish, the black comedian, and she always says, we've got to throw the rope back. And for me, I've had a lot of help from white, racialized black women. And it's my turn to, to throw the rope back to folks that have less opportunities or less, less access than I get. Um, and the second is Amaral Saunders and Dow, who's also at University of Toronto, who helped me to understand limitations. So her mentoring wasn't about everything I could be, but rather about how to be successful in these systems in the way hopefully I'm sharing that I don't want to lie to people that, yeah, it is easier if you have a PhD. And she did that for me. She talked about the real practical limitations that I would have in my workplace. And I needed a woman to tell me that. I needed a black, a racialized woman to tell me that I wasn't going to get everything at the same time. And so the combination of those two people was helpful. And what I think about as I'm wondering about people listening to the podcast is, what was it about their mentorship that made a difference? And it was that it modeled what they weren't talking about in their work. They did the sponsorship thing that you alluded to, which is mentorship is when you give people advice one-on-one -on -one and like a coffee, and it's one directional and goodbye. Sponsorship is when you talk about them when they're not in the room. When you say, I'm gonna help you get that job, when you say, oh, I know the perfect person for the panel. And they both sponsored me. And so when I try to mentor a sponsor, I try to champion the person when they're not in the room so that I'm a part of their pathway versus just advice. And Marianne, who was key in your career? I go back to my law school days uh, to this incredible woman named Rose Voivodek, who's passed away now. Rose, I think I'm on the long list of the Rose um, mentory list and, and fan club. I, everyone I meet who had any dealings with legal assistance of Windsor, you know, begins the conversation with, and of course there's Rose. 
So Rose Voivodek modeled an incredible career of, of volunteering, of wanting to increase access to justice and uh, her support to immigrants in the Windsor area, particularly um, uh, vulnerable workers was just incredible. And I found the advice that she gave me uh, because I, I thought I might want to go into working in the legal clinics, which was an almost impossible job to get. I, I, it's just hysterical to think about these now, but you couldn't get a job. I had to volunteer in order to, to get a job. I volunteered for six months, lived off of savings. That was the only way in. And actually it was because of Rose. So it's interesting that distinction around sponsorship because it was all around who you knew and, and, and Rose would would absolutely call up. She'd, she'd be at a meeting, someone would say, well, I need I need someone for two weeks to, to help out. And she, oh, Marion, Marion can, Marion can do it. She, I'm like, Rose, I don't know if I can do that. What you're saying, yes, you can. Just fake it, you'll be fine. Call me if you need some help. I, it, she was an incredible woman. And I actually, from that uh, strength, for her strength and her believing in me, um, opened up a lot of doors and and I was able to to get that position in in uh, a legal clinic but she also gave me the, the strength I'm a blind woman I had never traveled before I had been on a plane so it's not that bad uh, but I to Nova Scotia that was my one and only plane trip and then I went to India and worked in prisons and I uh, by myself and she was my strength she was like yes you absolutely can do this you'll be fine. Call me if you need me. That was her answer to everything. Just give me a call if you need me, I, you'll be fine. And it was, it was incredible. Uh, one of the hardest things I ever did was living in India, that's for sure, working in prisons. Um, <clears throat> but uh, she, she just had such faith in me. I think you need someone who has faith in you mm. and who will <clears throat> tell you the truth when the truth needs to be told but also is your cheerleader and, and, oh, you can do it. It's no problem. Like you need the, the, your first mentor who's like, yes, absolutely. You can do your PhD. It's no problem. Well, actually it's a lot of work and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it through. Yes, you will. It's fine. Like you need somebody just like, I don't want to hear your belly aching. You just, you're going to go and, and, and do this. And they're there for you too. When you are belly aching, when it is too hard, they're there as well. I want to add something to that because of what you said. And it's something about both of you. I think we think mentorship has to be somebody that's higher than us or to a place that we want to go. And I'm thinking about how much Sarah and Marion have been mentors to me. And I think they might say that I've had some mentorship um, towards them. And one of the things that's incredible about the organization that we're in of human rights folks across the country is that I think we need to look at horizontal mentor mentorship. Yes. It's this idea that, like, it's not just I want to get there, but how do we support each other in the work and mentor each other in areas where we might have expertise where the other doesn't? Because when I think about who's championed me the most, it isn't always, and it's been many people that are above me, but it's usually people at my level, a, a little bit above or below, that have my back, that want the best for me, that are helping me read the email, that listen to my presentation, that are showing up for me that have pushed me to believe that I can do these things. And so I think I often say to young professionals, seek out vertical mentorship, the CEO, fine, the chair, the president, the director, whatever. 
but seek out horizontal mentorship and seek out people at your level that can also be that support. Yeah, that's a good point. And I feel that because I, that's yeah. been my experience with the two of you, to be honest. One of the things I saw today that is Sarah modeling is Sarah Gan has always done the work behind the scenes. So in addition to making sure that these messages get out and you see her doing this podcast, she does all of the work behind the scenes and in this organization, it's been incredible to watch you take on any task that will help the greater good. And I think there are few people that do as much work as you do without a need for credit. And that has been something that I have really cherished in working with you. So you, you model a lot of the things you're talking about in this work and you ran our most successful webinar and it was important to you as a white woman that racialized folks were featured, that you were in the background and you did all of the work. And to me, that is more than mentorship. That's more than sponsorship. That is what allyship is. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to be on this podcast because of the, the ways in which you do the work. So I want to make sure we tell the audience that we see you. Marion said, find your people. You gotta yeah, go out yeah, and find, find your, your people. people, right? Yeah, it's true. I, I, Tony, I guess probably, I think there's a lot of people who know you through Capti or through many other ways who, who would say the same of you. I think you live that, you you model that kind of support for people. I, I've just watched you around in this event. Like, you're, you're uh, what does Gladwell talk about the the connector, right? Mm. Uh, I think he had you in mind when he <laughs> was describing that. I wish he would connect to me. I, <laughs> yeah. want to, I love him. Oh, well, well, hey, hey, listen to this yeah, Malcolm, if you're listening, give, uh, give Tony a call here. <laughs> um, so let's talk about something a little bit more difficult. So as we move along in our careers and get more senior, we become more visible. And we do a lot more advocating publicly. And with that comes the haters. Right. So um, with that attention, we're, we're disrupting for change. We are making people uncomfortable in these conversations. And if you're not making people uncomfortable, then you are not doing this job very well. Right. So with that will come um, media attention. Uh, you'll be out talking about what's important to you and, and you may get some backlash. Right. You're threatening power structures. Um, so. I know I've seen this. I, the first time it happened to me, I was I, I was absolutely floored. I was, uh, you know, uh, doing a TV uh, interview about a new program we launched, and somebody took it upon themselves to transcribe the entire TV interview and point out where I had made uh, perhaps grammatical mistakes or I hadn't articulated myself very well, and they felt it was necessary to critique me all the way through, find my email. I was like, who who is this invested in? And in my mind, this is why women don't step up, don't speak out, because I was also a little bit embarrassed for myself, right? Like a little bit shamed. Um, it hasn't stopped me, but that's how you feel in, in the moment, right? So you, and I have, I have more, <laughs> you know, as this goes on. But, um, and I, I know you probably both had um, experiences in this space. So I'm wondering what your career advice, Marion, is around this type of, uh, personal attack like from a career perspective, not from a comms or a PR per perspective, right? Not how we're going to shape a response organizationally, but what do you do when you have been kind of personally criticized or attacked for disrupting those power structures? So it's, it is a, an ongoing struggle for, for me. Um, I could have 99 amazing, wonderful comments, uh, half a comment that is in the middle and another half a comment that is was kind of a critique and that's the only one that I will remember 
and it's the one I will focus on the whole time. Forget about the other 99, doesn't matter. Or even the mediocre one, I will only focus on the on that. And that's been uh, quite a challenge for me professionally to be able to move move through that. And even though I, I will, you know, one of my techniques, I guess, is to surround yourself with folks who will uh, tell you, you know, will, will support you and know you're great. The, the problem is I never believe it. Right. Well, actually, you're just telling me that because you're 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 my friend or you're telling me that because, you know, we know each other, but it's not really true. So it's been a, a really struggle for myself. Uh, it's something I have to work on um, just for my own mental health. I had a brief reprieve once. Uh, so I was raised I consider myself culturally Catholic at this point, but I was raised in a very strict Catholic household. Uh, so there's a lot of guilt that goes with that. One time my partner said to me, you know, you Catholics, you think everything is about you. It's not about you. It's about whatever that person was thinking or, or whatever. And for just a second, I felt like, oh, I felt really great. Like I, I didn't need to worry about this anymore. I'm feeling really good. And then about 30 seconds later, it was like, and I'm so self-absorbed that I think everything is about me. <laughs> and I was able to, yeah, so the, the training is deep. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I work, I, I guess my, my, my technique is to work, to have truth tellers in my life who will, who I know don't just say it was great. What a great job. I have someone who will say it was okay. It was great. But for, you know, maybe that was something you could have worked on. And actually people who will say, okay, I'm going to help you to, to work on that thing, whatever that whatever that critique was about my presentation or about the skills or the thing that I did. But it, um, I always thought I'd like to go into municipal politics. I thought that would be interesting, although I don't know why really. And I think about arguing with people about the garage, their garbage pickup, how interesting that might've been. But uh, I don't think I have the, um, I don't have the thick skin to do it. And I have, I've had to accept that. And, um, so maybe that wasn't the answer that you're looking for, but it's the vulnerability of, of, of a thing, something that I have to keep working through. Thank you for, I think your authenticity there. And, uh, I keep saying equity, diversity, and inclusion people are heart people. So these criticisms really do kind of get under, under the skin. Tony, what are your thoughts around kind of that public criticism of you and your work and how to manage that? So I've never been critiqued. People are generally like pretty, no. So, like, literally uh, nothing we do. You send out an email, they will critique the font. Like, it, it's literally, there's nothing you do or say that everybody is satisfied by. And I'm listening to Marion because I love your vulnerability because I want to say I have a thick skin. And the truth is I cry in silence. And so I, when the haters hate, 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 I do not let them know they got the better of me, but they got the better of me. And I think that is the loneliness of this work, mm -hmm. is that what Marion is saying is so much truer than what I would have said before you talked. Because I, again, want people to know we have to do this work in spite of that criticism, because there are people that are beside us and coming behind us that need us to forge. And yet that crying alone is real. Yeah. And what has been difficult for me hasn't been people criti critiquing me as a person. So she's not competent, worries me less because I believe myself to be more competent. Uh, she's not good, 
um, hasn't been as challenging as I know it is for some of my colleagues because I think I'm good at the things I do well. Anybody at CAPTI will tell you I will not find typos in my emails. That's just not something I'm good at. But I'm really good at speaking. I'm really good at training. I'm really good at teaching. And so when people critique those competencies, I, they don't hurt as much. What has hurt me the most is when people say I don't care about the things to which I've dedicated my life. So when I'm running a case and somebody says you don't care about black people, you do not care about Jewish people, you do not care about survivors because you're a process from survivors, I cannot reconcile it. It is such a deep pain because I think you wonder to yourself, am I doing this, this stuff for self-aggrandizement? Am I doing this stuff because I have a savior complex? Do I need to fix the world? Am I authentic? And, and you have those questions to yourself as you should. So when somebody calls you and says like, you don't care about mental health, I don't know why, but those are the ones that are most painful for me. To question sort of what brings you to the work, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And potentially because that's what we're doing all the time. We're questioning, is the work authentic? Who's really doing it? Who's performative? And so when that comes to you, which it does often in this work, that has been painful for me. I think what's been also challenging is that the people doing the work are the hardest critics. And we are hard on each other. I always say the hardest people in the left, because I'm on the left politically, you might not. No. Might yes, yes, it's true. Okay. You might not believe it. But I find the left so hard on the left. My right wing friends are much less hard on me than the left. My left friends, I could just never be left enough. Honestly, yes. I'm yeah. constantly like, I wish I was more radical. And I have this friend named Will, a colleague that I love, um, who does the work I do. And one of the things that's helpful is he's very honest with me about places I need to re-examine. And I'm able to accept the critique because I am so loved and valued in that friendship. And so what I say to people is, try to listen to critiques that are from people that do not know you for five minutes. But those that know you, love you, and value your work, and are having a hard, hard conversation that might hurt you, it is coming from a place of love, and I spend a lot of time on that. And it's funny, because it's almost like the people we love, we spend less time with, because we're like, he loves me, it's fine. And we spend all this time on these like right-wing people that don't even believe in the premise. And so I try to focus my energies on people that are genuinely trying to help me in the work, which I find harder, because their critique falls heavier, because I care so much about what they think. Um, but I think it, what you have raised that is most important to me is how much Sometimes we pretend we have a thick skin and I don't know that we do. And I did run for office and it was horrific. It was horrific as a woman of color. It was horrific as a woman. It was horrific as a racialized person. The ways in which you are treated based on those identities. And I keep thinking I will have a thick enough skin to represent my people in other ways, but it is really hard. Yeah, I don't. I had to come to some understanding that I did not have a thicker skin as I may portray. Yeah. I do. I, I people are usually surprised when I say I, I, I don't really have a very thick skin. I mask it in many, many, many ways. Um, but it it cuts and it hurts. And I do try and like I said earlier, try and find the person who's criti who who will give it to you in an honest way but not in a hurtful way. And that's where I think you're, we're kind of referring to. We can challenge each other. I want to think of, you know, let's think about this, let's re-examine this, but it's, a, it's done in a way that is thoughtful and isn't cutting you to the core of your being and why is it that you're doing this work? That's it, not about that. They know why you're doing the work and they're just, we all help each other to think and to advance in our work. That's how we, that's how we do it. That's why we, I surround myself with folks who 
are thinking better than I am, are, are one, two, five, ten steps ahead. I'm learning from them. I'm grateful for it. And, and sometimes that learning comes with a critique, like you, you haven't thought this through enough and, and I need you to do a little bit more work here. That's okay. You're like that person to someone else. Mm. Someone else is, you're, you for sure are, I've been telling people, oh, maybe we need to think this through or think advance and you're that person. So I, I don't mind that. It's just the other. I wish I had a thicker skin. Oh, uh, maybe we don't need thicker skins. Maybe we need to question the ways in which we have allowed people in the public sphere, in university contexts, in businesses, to speak to each other. And we use the term civility, which I also find I struggle with so much because when racialized black and indigenous people have an opinion, they're uncivil. And when white people have an opinion, they're opinionated and passionate. So I even struggle with the concept of civility as a very colonial, uh, Western, oppressive idea. But I think it's like we think people should have tougher skins, but what I can understand is we've allowed for a political system that enables people to speak with hate and in a demeaning way that's seen as acceptable. So the first time I went to Queen's Park in high school and I watched the way politicians have immunity and they can call each other cows and pigs and dogs and that's some political immunity. And I thought, this is what we have at our highest level of representation. And so maybe it's not that we need a thicker skin, but that people need to have a stronger conscience about the ways in which they're allowed to speak to people in yeah. these positions. I think uh, we might need to have a whole other podcast if we're going to unpack, you know, <laughs> that conversation. I think it's, it's the nugget of something we could definitely unfold. Um, I think our listeners at this point can see why I find you both so inspiring. But I want to give just a second here for the people that have come out uh, in person to, to kind of hear this conversation, a chance to ask any questions they might have of Marion or Tony around how to build a career in EDI. What are you wondering? Um, any any questions you might have for, for the panel? So she was asking, uh, where should we invest our energy when uh, kind of addressing the resistors? Where, where are we going to make the most progress around that? I'm a bad example for this because I think I try to do everything and I'm often exhausted. And a lot of my colleagues that love me tell me to pick my battles better. And I have a very hard time doing that. And so sometimes we're fighting about a document where we need to be more strategic to win the bigger argument around resourcing. Or, and I was talking to my colleague, Remy Warner, about this today, and I said, how do we do the work in a way where we're getting results? Because so many things are a battle. And a lot of people have told me to pick your priority areas and know that you can't win everything, but don't worry about the resistor, worry about what they're resisting. So if you're like, my goal in this organization is curriculum change, and they're talking about events, that might not be where you spend your energy. So pick your strategic goals and respond to resistors in those areas. Because if you push those, they might be a response in themselves. But I would say it's an area that I have to work on because I, I often do let the squeakiest wheel get energy and attention outside of my personal life, right? In my personal life, I really do give it to the people that love me, that are trying to do the work and help me. But when I'm doing stuff for our agenda, our goals, these squeaky wheels, they get lots of attention. And I think um, one of the things that has been helpful for me is to use those mentors and to use people that have had more experience than me working with those communities 
to ask what strategies I should use and how much energy I give. So I'll give you an example. I've had some really difficult experiences in the last year with newspapers and inaccuracies in newspapers, reporting about myself and colleagues. And then we're in this institution where we can't defend ourselves because of privacy protections and because of how it can look reputationally. And so you have people trashing you and you can't say that's literally false what's being reported. And many people said to me, you can fight those newspapers all you want, you're not going to win. But I know I will win if I'm talking about practitioners at other universities. I have one when I'm talking to deans and chairs. I have one where I'm talking to corporations. And so knowing sometimes where those resistors are, you're just going to spin your wheels and listening to people who have some knowledge. Like it was my friends in comms that said they're not going to change the article. No matter what you say, it's not going to help. That let me say that even if I resist, it's going to be futile. Yeah, what's that saying? If uh, if you wrestle a pig, you're going to get muddy and they're going to like it. <laughs> don't wrestle a pig. Right? Don't so, wrestle a pig. Don't <laughs> wrestle the pig. Um, Marion, any thoughts? I. It's a great question because it's something I've been thinking about recently and <laughs> how much energy we spend on the squeaky wheel. So the one person in the meeting that's disrupting the entire meeting on their agenda their agenda or or what they want to what they want to talk about and there's there's actually a whole we we haven't moved we haven't moved along we haven't done anything and sometimes that's important they're like we haven't hit the foundational so i'm going to stop us here while we address the foundations but um i've been thinking about it a lot recently and some things that i have done to to i don't know go Go to, go to those, like I was thinking about, I'm just, I have an example in my head where I said, I, 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 we can't continue to have these meetings if the squeaky wheel is, is always going to be squeaking. Um, address whatever issue there is. If you're not going to address it, then we need to move on, move on. And we need to, I need to hear that others agree with that. And if others are agreeing with that, yeah, this is, this isn't the right, um, uh, conversation or we need to move on from this conversation then collectively we we make that decision I don't always have to do it by myself um, others can come together and say we've collectively decided we're not going to address this resistor or the resistor is but one of many and where's my where am I, where's the team where are the others who um, who want to move this forward and I have found success in that regard in that sometimes this person's just squeaking by themselves. They're very lonely in their resistance because everyone else has actually moved on. It's kind of things around change management are about this too. Like they're just sort of left by themselves um, because because there was enough that agreed that we should move on with whatever it is that we want to move on, move on to or or advance or what or or whatever have you. I'm not sure my answer was as quite as as valuable as Tony's or it's articulate, but finding others around you is kind of and moving past that person. I found it very valuable. Yeah. Well, please we're, don't we're insult here. my yeah. friend. <laughs> well, um, with that, I'm going to have to say that we're kind of coming to the end of our time together here. Um, I know our listeners are probably hoping to, we could go for another hour. So I'm going to have to have you back to continue uh, this conversation. But I want to thank you both so much for your insights, for your candor, for your authenticity and, and just your, your energy and commitment to 
kind of throwing that rope back and, and sharing that advice to others who are looking to build a career in the field. So thank you both so much, Marion and Tony. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming out and kind of spending some time with us. I hope there was something that uh, you can take away from this. I also want to thank the uh, CAPTI conference organizers for making space for us to have this conversation. And of course, to our uh, incredible production team at Pop-Up Podcasting that's going to make sure that we all sound great. So thank you so much and have a great afternoon, everyone. <laughs>